There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet bright minds to talk about big ideas that matter in politics, art and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. This week, we talk to the journalist and activist Owen Jones about where the left goes next after Labour's crushing defeat in the election last year. He emerged as a powerful socialist voice with best-selling books, Chouse and the Establishment, which respectively dealt with the bottom and the top end of Britain's class-bound society. But he's best known for riding simultaneously and controversially the twin horses of columnist and campaigner of the Corbynite insurgency that went from a glorious summer at Glastonbury to a chilly December catastrophe in just a couple of years. Owen, thanks for joining us. Um, and how are you doing? Uh, it's a real, real pleasure. And I'm doing as well as it can be expected, I suppose, in the current circumstances. How are you doing? I'm fine, yeah. I'm like a bit depressed about the second lockdown emerging at the same time as Greenwich Mean Time. But um, let's try and put yeah. that out of mind because we've got enough doom and gloom in a way to go through in talking about this land, haven't we? So one thing about the book, as I've referred to, is you, you're an unusual figure in that you're both a kind of um, very prominent journalist, but also you're inside the room in lots of these conversations. Uh, and that gives the book a distinctive flavour. One story jumped out for me, which was the story about, I've never heard before, about jam. Jeremy Corbyn wanted to give the Queen some jam. I mean, I, bear in mind, I wasn't in the room for the vast majority of, of and I certainly wasn't in the room for that one. Um, and we, we could talk about the, the journalist activist thing, which I always found quite an interesting thing to discuss. But in terms of the jam, so this was uh, the 90th birthday of the Queen. And this was uh, obviously back in uh, 2016. And remember when Jamie Corbyn first became leader of the Labour Party, uh, which was this kind of inferno of a week, uh, where they had all sorts of plans. They wanted to go on rail nationalisation from the first week, but that was derailed because he failed to sing the national anthem at a Battle of Britain memorial event. And that, you know, in the beginning seemed to frame him in the way the right wanted, unpatriotic, hates his own country, etc, etc. So his team, when the Queen's birthday came around, were like, do not mess this up. We can't afford to. And Jeremy's brought into a room by his advisers, and he was very reluctant. It's just not his thing. And uh, then some bright spark piped up and said, well, why don't we just, you just give us some jam for a birthday? And he's a great idea. 
uh, you know, he loves making jam. So the next day he comes in with some jam, which he'd just splattered into some like Kenko jar or something. And, uh, and someone, an aide pointed at it and said, that's a Daily Mail headline right there. So then they sent someone off to get some, to get some, like a proper jam jar. And they came back with just like a jam jar with jam in it. And they said, we can't use that, don't do that. And then someone was sent out, I think, to House of Fraser and came out with a gingham basket and some nice jam jar. So someone said, this is great, we've done it. And then they opened up his jam and it had mould on it. So they scraped off the mould, poured it in, and then got Joss McDonald, the uh, speechwriter, I don't think he was at the time, but they, he cycled it off to Buckingham Palace. And then the Queen sent a lovely handwritten letter saying how much she appreciated the jam. I was worried. One of uh, Corbyn's most senior aides begged me to take this out of the book because they thought it would become a Daily Mail headline, but it hasn't. And I think it's very endearing. I don't think... I think you'd have to be so dry to find that objectionable. But he did... They did give the Queen mouldy jam for her 90th birthday. But you have edited it a little bit there because in the book you say one of the aides cried out, what if she dies? Oh yes, sorry. When he's scraping the... Oh, you're right. When he's scraping the... He took the film of mould off. Theresa May, apparently, she did that all the time. That was reported last year. She always took the mould off. But um, yeah, someone said, I, what if she dies? They were worried they would inadvertently kill the Queen with mouldy jam from Jamie Corbyn's allotment. That is a true story. It's a true story and it's rather a good one in that it kind of gets at the arc of your book because it's got so much kind of catastrophe in it and so much then kind of moments of hope as well and didn't end in fact with the, the death of the Queen. Um, no. <laughs> so, she's still alive. She's, she's going well, the Corbyn Project isn't unfortunately. Yeah, so the jam story goes from things going worse than you might think to better than you might think and, and unfortunately the um, the broader story of the book goes goes the other way round, doesn't it? And it really, it's a story of two kind of unexpectedly successful events. Jeremy Corbyn winning the leadership election in the first place, doing unexpectedly well in the 2017 election, and then Jeremy Corbyn crashing and burning last year, with two big rocks in the road being the anti-Semitism crisis and the Brexit conundrum. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think what... So what happened in, in the 2017 election is a few things happened. I've, firstly, the, you know, I remember when, when the manifesto leaked uh, infamously in the 2017 election campaign and all the kind of court aides were having a meltdown over it. Andrew Fisher, their head of policy, who wrote the manifesto, he was just, you know, completely grey. But actually what happened in that election is the fact it leaked and was splashed you know, all over the Daily Mail. Shock, horror! Labour wants to nationalise the railways and make rich people pay more tax. That appealed to people. That actually had a huge constituency. The majority of people support those sorts of policies. Um, and it, 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 it fitted the zeitgeist. It showed that the political consensus established by Thatcherism was always... You know, she said famously, didn't she, in the early 80s, that, you know, economics is the method... Um, but it, but to, to, she wanted to change the soul. She wanted to reshape what it was to be a human, uh, to, to strip away the collectivist mindset she felt had been established by the Attlee government after World War II. And in a sense, it showed it never, she never succeeded. That never worked. That people were resigned to the Thatcherite consensus. There is no alternative, as they were told. But actually, it was always built on sand because no one passionately thought, well, I think the railway should be run by 
private companies or I do think the rich people they're ever so hard done by and they shouldn't pay more tax. So you got in that, you know, that manifesto appealed to millions of people, including a generation who'd never really heard those ideas in the mainstream before. Um, and at the same time, Jeremy Corbyn on a personal level, he did have extremely negative ratings going into the 2017 election. But actually, you know, in that election, the negative impression at the time had very itself shallow roots. It, it wasn't cemented. And the more people saw him in the election campaign, the more, the more they, they warmed to him as an individual, uh, which was the opposite, of course, infamously with Theresa May. And what happened after the election was, uh, for those two and a half years, is firstly that domestic popular political perspectives, all the oxygen was sucked out of it by Brexit. Political debate in this country was not about, as it was for a period um, in the 2017 election campaign, about taxing the rich or abolishing tuition fees. It was about the customs union and tariff-free access to the single market. And that sucks the oxygen out uh, of, you know, as I've said, of, of those... No-one was talking about those policies. And uh, what that did, the Brexit, you know, why it was so fatal, in a sense, was... Corbynism was about class politics. Uh, it was that was summed up in the election campaign as for the many, not the few. It was this idea that the interests of the majority are on a collision course with those at the top, that we can provide a better standard of living for the majority by making those at the top pay for it. That was the basis of, you know, the antagonistic, the antagonism, the basis of Corbynism. But Brexit was a culture war and we were no, it was no longer about the many or the few. It was about remainers versus leavers. And that culture war split communities it went down you know split it didn't it didn't fit across social class it did you know it did often split ages it 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 it, it was something which you know culture wars are a poison to class politics and at the same time because you know what labor tried to do is keep to their holding position of 2017 which was constructive ambiguity. Don't define your Brexit position. Brexit is always going to be worse for the Conservatives. That was the hubris that set in. And, um, but what happened is the People's Vote campaign filled a vacuum because without a clearly defined Brexit, which Labour campaigned on after 2017, there was a vacuum left that was filled by the People's Vote campaign who failed at winning over Leavers, but they did succeeded in making existing Remainers more angry uh, about Brexit and the deadlocked parliament increased Remainers, more and more Remainers, that instead of settling for soft Brexit, they could just reverse it altogether. And that dragged Labour more, you know, more and more to a, a Remain position, essentially, or towards a second referendum, a so softer Brexit. And that left, that stripped away the one asset Jeremy Corbyn had in the 2017 election campaign. No one's ever going to say this is a charismatic you know, guy in, in any traditional sense or had traditional leadership skills. But his one asset was he means what he says and he says what he means. You might not agree with him, but he's a man of principle. And that wrecked it. And that combined with the anti-Semitism scandal, because to be honest, I don't think lots of people properly understand anti-Semitism in this country, but they got a sense of there's something not right here. It stripped away the idealistic sheen of Corbynism. It, it, you know, it stripped it for some people of this isn't something I necessarily agree with to this is sinister and malevolent even if I, you know, they didn't understand necessarily the intricacies of anti-Semitism. So all of that toxified Corbynism. It became, he became this triangulating, as the public saw it, this triangulating, speaks out of both sides of his mouth, only says what he wants in order to, to win an election. 
Um, and there's something sinister and dodgy about this and murky. And the Salisbury, the Salisbury... So he's just another politician and he's not a very good politician. He's, 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 he's... That's it. I think that's the problem because actually if he was just... Because he was such a unique political figure in the sense that no political party has ever been led by someone catapulted from such obscurity with no experience of, of, of high office into... You know the, the front, the, the the actual the the main seat uh, as as leader of a political party, um, and the one asset he could always rely on is this is a uniquely principled politician. This is someone who never had any aspirations of becoming leader or even becoming a shadow minister or you know the, the most lowly position imaginable. Uh, he's just someone here because he believes in what he thinks, and that that one big advantage was utterly shredded mostly by Brexit, uh, and the idealistic sheen was stripped away by the anti-Semitism scandal uh, crisis. So, so that's the story. There's a couple of kind of interesting what-ifs um, in there, I think. Because, I mean, you know, it's hard to argue, I think, with the analysis that Labour was in a no-win position with Brexit, in the sense that, like, you know, old people who went to work in men's clubs, um, like, in Barnsley thought one thing about Brexit and young people who are out campaigning in universities in Manchester and London clearly thought exactly the opposite. And so that was going to be divisive. Um, you take kind of, you give a sympathetic hearing to both, both sides of that argument. But what if it leaves hanging for me is, what if Labour had thought a bit further forward and thought, well, yes, as Corbyn had said, you know, the referendum in some way is going to be honoured, but like, let's get this out of the way. Let's get a version of Theresa May's deal through. Uh, let's like slow down the electoral timetable and get back to talking about things other than Brexit. Do you think that would have been completely transformative? So this is, for me, the, the, uh, the, the counterfactual that's worth indulging because there are some who basically fast forward to 2019 and after the open elections and go, well, that was really, why did Labour back a second referendum then? And, and I think if they're honest with themselves, it was too late by then and all options were, were catastrophic. But by 2019, the membership wanted another referendum and Corbynism had, become, you know, the, what underpinned Corbynism was he was elected in both leadership elections to the tribune of the membership. Uh, in the second leadership election, that was absolutely critical because it was the Parliamentary Labour Party had overwhelmingly rejected him and his legitimacy lay with the membership. So Corbyn himself, by then, his own view was... We, you know, we've pushed the membership as far as they're going to go. We're going to have to back a second referendum. But if you rewind back to 2017, what, you know, I suppose the what if is, what if Labour said after the election, here's our clearly defined Brexit position, uh, because they didn't back a customs union until February 2018. So they could have said, well, we want a customs union. We want this clearly defined Brexit. And we're going to say to the government, Back us on this. Come and meet us. You no longer have a, a majority in Parliament. <clears throat> the only way the referendum result can be honoured is on a cross-party basis. So let's meet up, hammer out the details, get it through and talk about domestic issues that people want to talk about. And I think the problem with that is that is, for me, wave a magic wand. That would be great. Um, but the problem is the reason that didn't... Well, there's lots of reasons it didn't happen is, look... Why after an election, if you, if you think to yourself, Brexit's always going to be worse for the Tories, which I think that was a hubris that set in during the referendum campaign. A lot of them were like, well, if Leave wins, it'll be worse for the Tories. Um, if you think that and you think, well, 
the Tories were in meltdown. Theresa May is, to quote George Osborne, a dead woman walking. Um, and the membership were on cloud nine. We've got Labour MPs singing, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, who just a few weeks ago were trying to get rid of him. Um, and, you know, why would we be seen to bail out the government on Brexit, which our membership don't really like, even if they haven't got as angry about Brexit as they will in a year and a half? So, I mean, this is why I get a bit fatalistic about Brexit. I called it the Brexit Bandersnatch after the Black Mirror episode in which it's an interactive episode where you can, ch- you can decide along the way what should the character do. And it always ends badly for him, just quicker or, or, or longer. Um, and I just worry with Brexit. I, and the other problem was, by the way, and this is why the so-called Lexit faction of the Labour leadership, the people who were instinctively sympathetic anyway to Brexit, um, who now obviously often talk about being vindicated, but actually they were the ones most resisting defining Labour's Brexit position. They didn't want a customs union and they opposed Labour backing a customs union when it did in February 2018. And the, the tragedy with that faction is they ended up backing the Brexit proposal, the Brexit package... They, they, they resisted and fought. They ended up backing it as the last port in the storm in 2019 as a sacred Labour Brexit deal, which must be the, the thing that the Labour the party champions. So if they had backed that earlier, then things could have been different, but they didn't. It, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, it was, it's been an extraordinarily fluid situation in politics, hasn't it? You know, the conventional wisdom is campaigns don't make any difference. The one in 2017 obviously did. The conventional wisdom was that you couldn't come and win the leadership election in 2015 out of nowhere. And he did. And, you know, during the um, year of 2019, I think the Conservatives went from something like 12 or 13 percent. Was it in the European elections up to 45 or something in the general? Oh, oh, eight. They got eight as far as I remember, didn't they? Eight percent. So, I mean, that's that's one for the record books. Any party anywhere going from like, you know, less than 10% up to nearly half. So there has been this kind of mercurial kind of thing in the air. You've said that Jeremy Corbyn, and I'm, I completely agree with you on this, doesn't care about Europe. It's not that he's a he's got a deep heart of Euroscepticism or anything. It's just not his subject. Doesn't care. Right. Just wasn't interested in it at all. Just genuinely wasn't interested. And maybe that was a strength in 2017, but a weakness in 2019. But I just wonder if a different character with so much up in the air, you know, so much to play for in terms of not going into it with a different um, prior, with a strong prior, could have, could have crystallised it in a different way and said, OK, we're going to get this thing out of the way and somehow be able to blame the Conservatives for the fact that it's not all that good. Yeah, uh, I don't, I mean, the, the count, so what, you mean take over at, at some point in that period? No, 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 no. I mean, if Jeremy Corbyn had been a, slight, a, a, a stronger yeah. leader, uh, a more creative, energetic leader, could he have... Um, yeah, I mean... Well, age is very difficult to navigate, but do you think the right person could have done it? Well, I, I mean, the point I make in the book is, is the problem is, is that his great, one of his greatest strengths was, in a sense, his fatal weakness, which is his aversion to conflict. The reason he got... John McDonnell, who I, tr- I tried to get on the ballot paper when I worked for him in the mid-noughties, along with my then colleague, Andrew Fisher, um, and we couldn't get him on the ballot paper because, to be honest, Labour MPs hated him. It's funny now because, actually, 
his, uh, a lot of the parliamentary Labour Party quite respects John McDonnell now, but at the time they, he was loathed. I mean, he, there was mutual contempt. I remember when we tried to get John McDonnell on the ballot paper, and I remember this because Claire Shaw, the former International Development Secretary, had resigned the whip. And Tom Watson, who was one of the first, I think the first MP to blog, and I remember he wrote a blog going, why doesn't John McDonnell have the, uh, the you know, my friend Claire Short has resigned, she has the courage of her convictions, why doesn't John McDonnell, and why have the Labour left put someone like John McDonnell up, who most MPs don't like, why don't they put someone up like Jeremy Corbyn instead? Uh, which is amusing in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, you know, John hated the fact that Labour MPs were often deeply unprincipled and lacked backbone, that they would argue against policies passionately, which they then would go and vote for. I remember this with the privatisation of the probation service. Uh, you know, there was an MP who kept leading the struggle, putting down early day motions, meeting ministers, doing kind of big Westminster debates, and then he voted for it. And John was like, what, what is wrong with these people? And he made that clear. So we couldn't get him on the ballot paper. The reason Jeremy Corbyn could get on the ballot paper is everyone liked the guy. I mean, you know, lots of MPs who nominated him, and, you know, look, think about the people who nominated him, people like Neil Coyle, uh, who uh, became probably the most ardent Corbyn, Corbyn sceptic of the lot. Uh, you know, he didn't have any enemies, and they thought, well, you know, he's not going to become leader. Uh, he'll probably get a humiliating share of the vote. If anything, we feel sorry for the guy because he's such a lovely guy, but we're going to put him on because he's a nice guy. And in 2017, the attempt by the Conservatives to pin on dangerous demagogue didn't work again for that reason, because he didn't seem like this... You know, he's not like George Galloway at all. He's this kind of, you know, kindness to everyone, never does personal. And that, that stripped away that, that menace that the Tories were trying to pin on him. But the downside of an aversion to conflict is, what is one of the definitions, almost, of leadership? It's the ability to take tough decisions. Why are decisions tough? Because they require conflict. You're going to piss people off on your own side. And you've got to face down opposition. And he, he hated that. He would just go missing. He'd turn off his phone. He wouldn't reply to people. He wouldn't turn up in the office. He would, you'd have, you know, people would have meetings with him and he'd just change the subject, go on tangents, go down rabbit holes uh, to, you know, to people's fury. Uh, you know, you'd have shadow cabinet meetings where it was absolutely, completely unclear as what had been agreed on anything. People kept trying to force things to be written down so there could be some consensus about what had been actually agreed. And that was the problem with Jeremy, because you've got a situation with Brexit, which obviously, you know, polarised the nation, polarised the Labour Party, polarised the Parliamentary Labour Party, and polarised his own operation, which ended up, by the end, disintegrating and in hostile camps. And he could not manage that conflict. He just couldn't. And, you know, you know I, I've, some people have come back to me on this and said, well, how, how can you say... A man who resisted such an establishment onslaught from his own side, the coup, the media, all the rest of it. How can you say that he's conflict averse? And I think the difference is he's got huge resilience. You know, he's stubborn in, in a way which actually allowed the survival of his leadership. But there's a difference between that and your own side in particular, having very strongly different views on the way ahead on the biggest issue of the day and you not being able to manage that conflict and just shutting down in response. And that was the problem. It was a fatal. It was a fatal problem. If he didn't, if he didn't have that flaw, then yes, of course. But I mean, then we're getting into the territory of if X leader didn't have the flaws they did, would things be better? Well, of course, by definition. Yeah. But that was his biggest flaw. Also, on anti-Semitism. You've got a long and anguished chapter on that, haven't you? 
Uh, and you, you, were, you were writing about it relatively early as a, as a serious issue for people on the left side of the Labour Party. Yeah, I, I, well, I, I, I was writing about this. I remember I wrote about this in 2011 uh, when I started as a writer, when Paul Flynn, the now late Labour MP, but he, 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 he questioned the loyalty of the British ambassador to Israel because he was Jewish. So I wrote a big thing about, for the New Statesman, about the anti-Semitic trope inherent in that. Um, and in 2015, during the first leadership election, I wrote about anti-Semitism on the left. I've, I mean, I've written column after column about left anti-Semitism. And I think the reason, the way of understanding left anti-Semitism, I think, is... Firstly, I think there's a conspiracist element which has always been attracted to the left, which is marginal, but very much there. If you're on the left, you believe that capitalism is a series of power relations, social forces. That's how you understand it. Um, if you're a conspiracist, you believe there are shadowy, shadowy individuals pulling strings behind the scenes. That always lends itself to anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is the deadliest conspiracy theories ever devised by humanity. And I think the other issue is that the Labour left, or the London Labour left of the late 70s, rejected, correctly, an old left which reduced everything just to class. They wanted to integrate women's liberation, gay rights and anti-racism. And the understanding of racism was systemic. It was this idea that uh, who was being stopped and searched, who was being disproportionately targeted by the justice system, who is disproportionately unemployed and poor, who is being monstered in, in, you know, by, the, by the media, culturally degraded. And it, you know, the 70s onwards, that overwhelmingly seemed to be black Britons. Um, and and today Muslims and that the, the the and the other issue is about whiteness and whiteness is not a static concept who is white and who is not the Irish were once excluded from the understanding of whiteness and for Jewish people since World War Two there's almost been this ambiguous relationship amongst some are they are they white or are they not and I think the problem is for some on the left that their understanding of racism therefore excluded a proper understanding of anti-Semitism because it was almost the case of we're treating Jewish people as white people and they don't suffer the systemic discrimination that Jewish people faced before World War II. And the problem with that was a failure to understand collective trauma amongst the Jewish people after 2,000 years of persecution culminating within living memory at the attempt to exterminate every European Jew which was successful in the case of two-thirds of European jury and that that sense throughout history Jews have is things we're being accepted now we're suddenly integrated and then things change very quickly which is what happened to the French Jews during the Dreyfus affair of the early uh, the late 19th century early 20th century the most integrated Jewish population in interwar Europe were the German Jews and that sense of something will change and we'll have to flee like our ancestors have always had to do is something which I don't think a lot of people on the left properly engaged with or understood. And I think that had a lot to do with it. We can see like, you know, there's individual sometimes um, BME campaigners who said, oh, I'm not going to have some white man telling me what to do or whatever when someone would complain about anti-Semitism in a, in, a, in a rather thoughtless way. But, you know, the analysis you've given seems fairly clear. So why was it so spectacularly mishandled? Why was it impossible to stem it? You know, there were, there were councillors who 
posted, as you mentioned, Holocaust denial, and somehow this machine kind of indulged them. Uh, they weren't expelled quickly. Jeremy Corbyn could have given speeches and then sort of wimped out of it because he didn't like being sort of expected to make them when in his own mind he was an unimpeachable anti-racist. It's sort of, it's, it's, you know, it's a complex phenomenon, but it could have been cleared up in some fairly simple ways, maybe that weren't, weren't, weren't done. Yeah, I think it would have always been torturous in, in a sense. I mean, it is worth you know, emphasising that the collapse in Jewish support for the Labour Party predated Jeremy Corbyn. It happened under Ed Miliband, who happened to be the first Jewish leader of the Labour Party. So in 2010, um, support amongst British Jews for Labour and Conservatives was pretty evenly divided, actually. In 2015, the Conservatives had an astronomical lead. Again, it, it, it differed by generation. Younger Jews were more likely to support the Labour Party than, than older Jews. Uh, secular Jews more likely than religious Jews. Um, not unexpected. But I think, I think, you know, and obviously the relationship would have been difficult to manage because, and this is again something on the left, something the left failed to engage with um, in terms of Israel, because, you know, it, when Israel was founded, the Labour left supported it. Uh, I mean, it was the first state, the first country on earth to recognize Israel was the Soviet Union, uh, which gave it military support and the international communist movement supported it. But so did the Labour left. Nye Bevin, Jenny Lee, Ian Ricardo, Eric Heffer, who famously marched off the platform in 1985 when Neil Kinnock uh, denounced militant. Uh, Eric Heffer, the Liverpool left winger, again, a very passionately pro-Israeli left winger. And that was because it was seen as Jews had been obviously suffered 2,000 years of persecution and, uh, you know, these were victims now of a, of a genocide and they, they deserved to have finally national self-determination. And there was a lack of sympathy for Arab nationalism because it was seen as, you know, the Middle East as this sea of reactionary Arab monarchies. And what changed was in the 60s, um, you got the rise of anti-colonial struggles across the world, Vietnamese... Algerians. Israel kind of becomes another one. But I, I mean, with, just with Corbyn, you sort of, you know, you say that he's averse to conflict, but he did choose to fight an almighty conflict and lost, didn't he, about, you know, the details of the examples for the... Yeah, but, but why it's relevant is in terms of it, because he was... It, Jeremy Corbyn is close to to lots of Jewish activists, but they're Jewish activists, and it's not... And I, I need to be careful here, because a very dangerous trope is to talk about bad almost bad Jews and good Jews, who is a legitimate Jewish voice. But it is the case that the Jewish voices he was closest to are not representative of the broader Jewish community, including Labour-supporting Jews, and in fact, including Corbyn-supporting Jews. They were, they were people who would, you know, again, a lot of them have been called self-hating Jews all their lives and feel very understandably upset and angry about that. Um, and, you know, they would emphasise to Jeremy, this is a smear campaign. And this is about Israel. And this is about the fact that you have stood in solidarity with the Palestinian people. And Jeremy Corbyn himself would, you know, because anti-racism is so core to his identity, being called an anti-Semite and a racist caused him to shut down emotionally and often become angrily defensive and, you know, refuse to engage at all. And I think it was a collective failure because the old party machine, which was run by the right of the Labour Party until March 2018, has very, very serious questions to answer about the failure to deal with anti-Semitism cases. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Just statistically, uh, but equally, you know, and the processes were improved, actually, when Jenny Formby, the left winger, took over the general secretary. Just factually, the processes were revamped. The number of cases dealt with massively increased suspensions and so on. It was streamlined. It was made quicker. But there was a polit- the problem was a political thing. It was, it was making an emotional appeal to British Jews to say, you know, a, you know, a passionate, blistering speech against the evils of anti-Semitism. So you'd have these ad hoc interventions. A very good article written for the Evening Standard, largely written actually by Andrew Murray, the chief of staff at Unite, very good, went into the nuances of anti-Semitism and so on. But it's not good enough to have that in a newspaper. It needed to be Jeremy Corbyn doing this statesman-like bow- down the barrel of a camera. You know, weirdly, I thought one good precedent of this, it sounds odd to jump to this, but I think there was something in this. Do you remember the expenses scandal? And David Cameron did this big speech where he went through various claims of senior Conservatives, himself included, you know, about wisteria, I think, and said, you know, Michael Gove claimed this, unacceptable, will we pay? You know, he just, he took, it, he took it head on. And I think that's what should have happened. It should have been, it should have been an unapologetic, anti-Semitism is a menace. And any anti-Semite in the Labour Party, one is too many, we are kicking them out. And, and to talk about this is what anti-Semitism is, this is why it's so frightening and scary and a menace, and we are going to show leadership and this is what we're going to do. They could have done that. And at the beginning, by the way, they could have combined that by supporting separately the Palestinian cause more passionately than they did. Because it's not like they advanced that cause. A lot of the high-profile cases, by the way, had nothing to do with Israel. I mean, it was just people saying completely outrageous, terrible things, um, which had, didn't, you know, and then they claimed, oh, this is about Israel. It wasn't. But they could have done those two things. And actually, they failed on both. So tell us about, let's just talk for a minute about, um, as I say, it runs very much through the book and it's acknowledged explicitly at the front of the book, being, being both a journalist and someone who's involved, you know, like maybe texting people on the NEC and saying you've got to renominate Jeremy or, or, or whatever it is. 
when it comes to something like this, you've been clear about what you think needs to be done and you wrote columns sort of saying it, but th there's also a pressure if you're on the inside that's different, isn't there? Like you want to be talking about what you want to be talking about and not the things that are the vulnerabilities for your own side. How did you navigate that? And did you feel it different and liberating to be writing a book after the event than writing columns before the event? Yeah, I mean, I mean, just the activist thing, obviously, always this this always comes up as I, I always find it quite a specific criticism of myself. I'm not saying you're you're doing that now, but I mean, and it's interesting. People, I've, I've noticed this whole texting members of the NEC thing keeps keeps coming up. I mean, the the text messages I I I I actually tweeted out at the time in 2016. So I publicly said, "Get in touch with the members of the NEC, everyone," and that was my public position. Uh, and and I rallies, you know. I mean, that's that, there's no nothing secret about it. No, no, no. But that's the point. So I've always been transparent. The reason I say that is, I think there's this sense of, you know, how can you be an activist and a journalist? I'm not comparing myself to these people, by the way. Before it sounds like delusions of grandeur, but take George Orwell. I mean, George Orwell didn't just campaign for political party. He took up arms for one in Spain. He took up arms for the Poom, homage to Catalonia, which actually some historians have criticised for being a partisan account of the Spanish Civil War through the lens of the Poom, which George Orwell actively fought for. Uh, you know, I mean, he is, of course, George Orwell was an activist. He was an activist. But who, who would say homage to Catalonia is not journalism? Or, or Paul Fott, you know, there's a journalist award named after him, the Paul Fott Journalism Award. Paul Fott was a member of the Socialist Workers' Party and stood for election about five times, as far as I know. Danny Finkelstein, he's a Conservative Lord, uh, and he's the flagship uh, Tory columnist. And I also would know, you know, what I found so ridiculous is you'd often get this debate about ethics in journalism centering on the one columnist in the British press who was sympathetic to the main opposition party, when you had entire newspapers which act as the partisan extensions of, 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 of the Conservative Party. I mean, they act, you know, the Sun, and, the Sun and the Daily Mail, the two biggest newspapers in the country, which overtly campaign in an overtly partisan way for the Conservative Party. So the difference between me and other journalists, by the way, because I know of other, col not just columnists, political reporters, who were essentially adages of uh, political, uh, past party political leaderships in their pockets, I mean, there's what I can say one famously because it's just a matter of record. You know, the relationship of Kamal Ahmed, he's now at the BBC when he was at the Observer. His relationship with Alistair Campbell, there's an entire film about it. It's called uh, Official Secrets. Uh, you know, and, 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 and other columnists. I know at least one columnist uh, who acted as, as a secret advisor to Ed Miliband. The difference is I'm just open about it. I just I'm very clear. I, I you know, no one is under any illusions about where I stand. And in terms of the book, do you find it? Did you find it a very different experience? Maybe it's a, a, a way of asking the question in a different way, writing a book that's more like, you know, instant history rather than writing the columns. Did you, did you feel any kind of uh, self-censorship in the, in, the, in, in the way you covered things disappearing? Well, I mean, at the time, I mean, I've had this again, it's this kind of, you didn't say this at the time. But I, I mean, I did. I just focused my fire on the Conservative Party because I felt I was one of the only columnists in the entire British media who was sympathetic. So, so to, as an example, 2018, in my column, I wrote, Labour has bungled its response to the anti-Semitic fringe on the left of the party, needlessly hemorrhaging goodwill with Britain's Jewish communities. Anti-Semitism exists, it's a menace, and frightens Jews traumatised by the all-too-recent Holocaust. Labour must show far greater leadership in tackling anti-Semitism in the party and rooting out any and every anti-Semite. I mean, I, you know, I said this over and over again. Uh, you know, I mean, in, in you know, dis I, I wrote, 
about the dysfunction of the operation. I don't normally write about Westminster stuff, but in 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 uh, in October last year, I wrote a, a a column about the coup against Carrie and the internal machinations and dysfunction. Uh, on anti-Semitism, Chris Williamson, the expel, uh, the kicked out Labour MP, said, I helped to destroy the Corbyn project by facilitating the weaponization of anti-Semitism through bad accusations designed to Smith. So the, the point I would make is the, the what I did during the Corbyn period, unapologetically, is say, well, look, almost the entire British media isn't just opposed to the Corbyn leadership. It regards it as dangerously illegitimate and uh, beyond the pale of, of, of acceptable political opinion. And I was one of the only columnists who was sympathetic. So I'd end up a lot of the time thinking, well, look, I could go and talk at length. And I did talk about my criticisms at the time. I could talk about a focus on that. But everyone else has that covered to such degree. And there's so much, you know, just extreme, almost just deranged stuff that surely I should focus my fire on the actual government who are actually doing things, who are actually in charge of the country uh, and focus my fire there. And also, when it comes to just completely unreasonable criticisms of the Labour leadership, surely somebody should at least counter them. And in a democracy, you, you kind of expect the main opposition party to have at least someone in the media who's vaguely sympathetic to them. But the issue was, people saw Corbynism as illegitimate, and therefore any journalist who was sympathetic was also part of being at that illegitimate project. Have you found it as... Because I, I get the sense it's been quite an emotional roller coaster for you, you know, because you've been... Um, you know, you had real anxieties, didn't you, in, in 2016 about whether this thing was going down and again in early 2017 and hear so. about should we change horses because it's going too wrong and then the vindication. You must have um, at times, uh, well, I know you've taken time off Twitter and stuff and said, you know, you worried about being stuck in an echo chamber and whatever. Um, have you found it draining? Do you, do you find it like you're depressed about the election result, but do you find it refreshing that now, you know, what you do and what you write about isn't going to be like breaking relationships and stuff in the way that I imagine it must have been? Look, I mean, I mean, obviously I'm extremely depressed about politics. Uh, so I, I don't, I, I find scant comfort in the situation we're now in. Look, I would say the Labour civil wars, you know, trashed a lot of, friendships and caused huge strain on friendships. If I think back to my friendship group in Parliament when I worked for John McDonnell, uh, and I'm sure they won't mind me talking about it, but this is quite funny. Uh, there was someone called James Bevan, who ended up becoming the political advisor to Owen Smith. Uh, Chris Ward, who is now the Deputy Chief of Staff to Keir Starmer. Leah Kreitzman, who's a main, one of the main advisors of the Mayor of London. I, I wasn't, you know, my friendship group wasn't embedded in the left of the Labour Party. James Bevan, who is my former housemate, we lived together. Uh, and obviously, you know, that, that put strains on personal friendships, no question. And it did for everyone involved in those Labour struggles. Um, no question. And it was depressing and bleak. Um, and, I, you know, I had people close to me during the first leadership election and afterwards and Labour MP saying, you've helped to destroy the Labour Party. How can you live with yourself? Um, Should we move to it? There is a, a, a cheerier note. Yeah. Yes, let's be more cheerful. Um, you know, you, you, uh, there's a good, at the beginning, you, it's called Before Corbyn, and the chapter reminds me of John Lennon's line about how before Elvis there was nothing, and you, you, you talk very amusingly and dryly about just how dead the centre had got. You know, it was several years after the financial crash, everyone was kind of pretending it hadn't happened. And that structural stuff, um, you know, the opening that came in 2017 is still 
kind of available in some ways you would you would think so when you look across the world now i mean do you do you feel hope about what comes next yeah yeah i do actually and actually i think in terms of the labor party there are more left-wing Labour MPs than there have been for four decades. It's about 40, about a fifth of the parliamentary Labour Party. Uh, the membership, a huge membership, who, you know, the reason Keir Starmer won is people who voted for Corbyn twice then voted for him. But they did so on the basis they still support the domestic policies, which Keir Starmer committed to in the so-called 10 pledges, which include public ownership, higher taxes on the rich, scrapping tuition fees, the sorts of things which, you know, the left fought for in the wilderness when nobody else did. Uh, you know, the fact that you, you have a younger generation, and I think this is what's so different from the 80s, because in 1983, Thatcher won the youth vote. She won the youth vote by a landslide. Uh, the, gap in, the, the gap in political... The generational divide in politics is, is, is a new thing, is, is in terms of how big it is. There's absolutely no precedent for it whatsoever. And I just think that's a structural thing that's not going away. You've got a younger generation... Who, whose lives are defined by economic insecurity, from housing to jobs, living standards, public services, and they have progressive social values. And the, the, the obstacle for Labour is support amongst older people's collapse because, quite rightly, their living standards have been protected through the triple lock in pensions, they're mostly homeowners, their house prices have gone up, and they tend to be socially conservative. That's their challenge. But amongst the younger generation, there's, you know, there is this well of support for progressive ideas which the left have championed for a very long time. So I just, I look at that and think, you know, if you look at the scale of the crisis this country now faces, the economic and social crisis is obviously an emergency without precedent since World War II, uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, we've got the climate emergency to deal with, you know, this is the warm-up almost for a far greater emergency. You know, I just think the things that the left have fought for uh, a, you know, a transformation of, of a broken social order, which doesn't work for most of the working age population, that is, that will have to change. And I suppose the hope has to be, you know, what happened in the 1930s. Uh, there was, uh, Labour's leader was a slightly unworldly, eccentric pacifist, George Lansbury. He was replaced by a barrister from the middle of the Labour Party, uh, who was, you know, seen as a kind of mild-mannered barrister, uh, but the emergency of World War Two meant that Labour argued now when we win the war, we've got to win the peace. And the, the peace is going to be, you know, a welfare state, a national health service, public ownership. We have to build a new settlement. And I, I suppose the hope has to be for the left now, having lost the leadership of the Labour Party, to use its collective strength. It's down, but it's not out. It's battered. It's bruised. It's, it's demoralised at the moment. But it needs to get its act together, use its collective strength in the unions, in the grassroots, amongst younger people to put pressure on the Labour leadership, to wish them well, but to put pressure on them to, to have a transformative policy agenda. And I think I feel confident about that. I think it's going to be hard. There are people in the leadership who don't want that to happen and are going to fight it. But politics is about struggle. And I think, you know, that struggle from below, I think we'll, we'll win out. Owen. On that more hopeful note, thanks very much for joining us. And that's all from us. Thanks for listening in to the Prospect interview. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating or review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next time.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.